Welcome to Reinventing Solidarity, a podcast of the journal New Labor Forum and the School of Labor and Urban Studies at the City University of New York. My name is Paula Finn, podcast host and editor of New Labor Forum. Reinventing Solidarity features scholars, activists, and artists on the front lines of movements for social and economic justice. We ask the essential and often provocative questions about race, class, gender, and the role of organized labor and social justice organizations in the work of creating a radically different world, a world with solidarity, equality, and sustainability at its heart. In this episode, journalist Laura Flanders speaks with Erica Smiley and Sarita Gupta, the authors of The Future We Need, Organizing for a Better Democracy in the 21st Century. The book and this conversation explore the great democratizing power of collective bargaining with potential applications even beyond the workplace in the yet mostly untried realms of housing, public safety, education, healthcare, and environmental justice, to name just a few. In this moment of national democratic peril and the upsurge in worker organizing, These bold new ideas hold both special urgency and possibility. So this won't come as a surprise to any of you, but workers have power. Yes, I know that most of you in our audience today know that, but read the recent coverage of the so-called Great Resignation or Striketober or the victory of the first Amazon union anywhere on April 1st. And there is usually a tone of kind of shock horror, or even surprise, depending on the outlet. Well, today's guests aren't surprised. They know that workers have always had power when they organize. The COVID pandemic may have exposed more people to that fact and may have led many working people to make some different decisions about their lives. But our guests say collective action has always been powerful when we use it. Indeed, they argue that many more of us need to do it much more often in many more aspects of our lives. They say that collective bargaining is not only for workers as workers, it's the way we build and the way we build not just a better democracy in this country, but our democracy building muscles for all sorts of change making. It's through that kind of practice that we improve our lives now and make our way through the dizzying years of automation, gigification and alienation, the economy that we have now, in other words, to get to the future we need, which is the title of their book. Sarita Gupta was for many years the executive director of Jobs with Justice until her co-author on this book, Erica Smiley, took her job. Now, Smiley, as she says she's been known since about age seven, is the ED at Jobs with Justice, and Sarita had to find herself another gig, which she did as vice president of the Ford Foundation, where she oversees all US programs. Both are longtime organizers, activists, and well, advocates of every kind, as you'll see. And their book just out from Cornell University Press is full title, The Future We Need, Organizing for Economic Democracy 
in the 21st century. Well, both of you, thank you so much for joining us. It is a pleasure. I don't really quite know where to start, but you know what? It's always helpful to kind of ground ourselves. So why don't you begin by telling me, well, if you want to, where you are, but where your head's at, who are you thinking about? What's on your mind as we start this? And let me start with you, uh, Smiley. Laura, it's so awesome to be here. And I love I love that introduction. It's so cheeky. Um, I just have uh, so much on my mind right now. I was actually just texting with Sarita. You know, I've been spending a lot of time supporting workers at Amazon who are organized throughout lots of different organizations and unions and structures and trying to maximize alignment where possible, but also not over coordinate. This is definitely one of those moments of letting every flower bloom and really testing what strategies would actually work to get workers to the table with such a large company that has so much control over our economy and our country, our body politic, you know, it's, it's, it's a, a monolith and, and certainly having more worker governance and just general regulation over this company in general will make a huge difference in terms of our overall democracy. And so I've been in the weeds of that, and I'm really excited to, to talk to you today about how that relates to the future we need and some of the thinking that Sreed and I have been putting together, but also the historical context, which I think is really valuable, especially when you think about the workers from Bessemer. Absolutely. Um, Sarita, how about you? Which weeds are you in? <laughs> so many, too many, too many weeds. A little rag weed, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. First off, just Laura, it's so wonderful to be with you. It's been a while since we've been able to be in conversation together. And I just want to take a moment to thank CUNY and the School, the School of Labor um, and Urban Studies for hosting us tonight. What a pleasure to have this conversation with with you and with Smiley, of course. And I guess my head actually, I have been thinking a lot about same thing, Amazon campaign and workers in motion right now. And frankly, Starbucks as well, just, just deeply inspired by what we're seeing as workers really exercise their voice um, and power right now. And actually Smiley and I have the opportunity on Monday to spend some time with an amazing worker leader from one of the Buffalo stores who really shared what workers are up against, the retaliation that they are experiencing as they're organizing. And I'm sort of holding them in my heart right now in this conversation as we think about what it really takes to right. build and win worker power in today's context. Well, thank you for that. I will say, you know, it's the, the media is never too far from my mind, the state of our media. And, and reading your book reminded me of just how poorly informed we are about some critical topics, including collective bargaining. So I, I hate to do this to you, but can you just start with reminding us what it actually is? And maybe you want to talk a little bit about why we are so poorly informed. Sarita. Sure. Well, at its best, collective bargaining is when workers are able to join together collectively and negotiate with their employers on a range of issues, including their wages and working conditions, and really exercise their collective voice in shaping some of the decisions that are impacting their lives in their workplaces. And why we don't know a lot about it and why the public has such little understanding of collective bargaining really speaks to some of the history that I'm sure we'll get into in depth. But just to say that over the last at least four decades, there's been a concerted attack on unions, there's been a concerted attack on collective bargaining as, as a 
means by which workers can actually win power in their workplaces. We've seen the, the, the development and support of a growing union busting industry that has made it their business to make people question what unions are, to perpetuate myths about what unions are as third parties or mobs or whatever else. I mean, we can all fill in the blank in this conversation. Um, but as a result, more and more of the public is less familiar with unions and collective bargaining. And especially given as a result of the real attacks on unions, the decline in union membership has meant that there are less people who actually have no other people in their lives who are in unions. So which means culturally, it's a tricky moment where the vast majority of the U.S., workers in the U.S., people in the U.S., really don't have a relationship yeah. to unions, unfortunately. Well, let's talk about those numbers a little bit, coming to you, Smiley. I mean, I think the last I saw it was something like 10.3% of workers in the U.S. belong to a union, even though there was more support for unions in principle than we've seen in decades. There was a, a Gallup poll, I think, put the number at something like 68%, which was huge, but people don't actually know. So, so maybe you could just pick up where Sarita left off, collective bargaining. It's not just like Groupon. It's not uh, like Groupon. It's not a deal at the Dollar Tree, right? In many ways, it's, it's trying to get us back to the practice of small d democracy. I mean, a collective bargaining agreement is just a policy for any given worksite. And we're you know, arguing that it should be expanded to other economic relationships as well. And I think it's, it's actually really important because at the foundation of what Sarita and I are talking about in the future we need is a healthy democracy. And what collective bargaining does, like Sarita said at its best, is engage people in the practice of governing, of setting standards, of setting rules, and that of enforcing those rules based on their own conditions and experiences, and of course, renegotiating them when things change. That's what, that's what democracy is at its fundamental level. And I think that in our country, we have conflated sometimes the institutions that are in place to carry out the mechanism of democracy, in this case, collective bargaining, with the democracy itself, right? And mm. just like you wouldn't knock on doors in my neighborhood and say, you know, hey, you should have the right to elect a senator. It's not just about saying to workers, you should have the right to form a union. Uh, unions are the channel through which we collectively negotiate. And that's ultimately what we're trying to get at, is that level of, of governance. That's the democracy building muscles that, that, that we're thinking about. So, so, who, practice with. <laughs> so who can do it and where can they do it? And what can they do it about collective bargaining, Smiley? Yeah, I mean, this is the thing, Laura. So like part of what we're arguing is that this really important function, this idea that you can come together and collectively negotiate your conditions with, say, the stakeholder on the other side of that economic relationship has been one of the key pathways to having democracy economically. And that, in fact, you can't have democracy if you just have political democracy. In fact, you need both. And without one or the other, the whole thing will kind of falter and, you know, witness the United States. That's what we're looking at in this very moment. What happens it's, when you have neither? Right. Go ahead. That's right. What happens, right. When, you have neither? What happens when you like really narrow how it can be practiced? I mean, companies negotiate contracts with each other all the time, multiple contracts with different parties, contractors, shareholders, all these things. You know, why are working people forced through just this one really narrow path to get to bargaining. I mean, that's how you can have a statistic that shows so much support for a thing, but so little active people joining and forming unions. It's because we've, we've created this incredibly narrow path. We've, we've centered the process of bargaining as this, this kind of obscure thing 
that a set of unions do and not actually a part of the daily lives of people and how they interact with the economy. So well, we one of the things I love about the book was that you you tell us a little bit about how we got here, not just yeah. that everything got worse, but there were actually times when people were collectively bargaining about many more things than we do now. Many more people That's were right. doing it. You take us back to the kind of, well, the reconstruction era, really. That's right. That was the last time where it felt like as a nation, we were all pointed in this direction of trying to build a multiracial democracy, albeit imperfect, right? But, you know, you've got a, a formerly enslaved workforce, formerly enslaved Black workers, leaving the plantations. In fact, it was what W.B. Du Bois called one of the largest strikes in American history when half a million workers simply walked off the plantations. And, you know, I'd be remiss not to, to draw the parallel today when, when what people call the Great Resignation actually being a great awakening as so many workers are simply walking off the job to work, say, one job instead of three. And so, yeah, that, that was the last period where we were pointing towards this idea of a multiracial democracy. And if you look at those Reconstruction Amendments, the same amendments that pretty much every civil rights act has been based on over the last 150 plus years, you know, it includes the 13th, which abolished slavery and forced labor and started giving us control over our labor. It included defining citizenship for the first time in, in the 14th Amendment, as long with other uh, legal doctrines. And of course, defining and beginning to expand who had the ability to vote in the 15th Amendment. And, and our movements for the past 150 years have been trying to actualize the promise of each of those, while our opposition has been trying to roll many of them back. And so, you know, all we're saying, it's not so much that the ideas in our book are new or even radical, right. but it's just trying to remind us of what it takes to build a healthy democracy, mm. particularly in a crisis, in a moment when so many people are recognizing like the cracks and the crisis in our democracy. So just a little bit more history, Sarita, to you. I mean, there are people that would say, okay, well, there was that era and then there was the 30s and you had the New Deal right. and you had the creation of the National Labor Relations Board and National Labor Relations Act. Job done? Didn't we kind of legalize collective bargaining? Right. If only, <laughs> if only that was, job was done. Um, no, that's exactly right, Laura. So the 30s, we saw this upsurge of worker mobilizations um, and actions we saw as a result, uh, you know, the creation of the National Labor Relations Act and the National Labor Relations Board, the Fair Labor Standard Act. But remember that this, we also excluded pretty large swaths of workers through the compromises that had to be made that got us to that policy, right? So we know that Southern plantation owners or politicians representing the interests of plantation owners were compromising with Northern politicians around the New Deal. And as a result, Black workers were explicitly excluded from coverage and specifically in the form of domestic workers and agricultural workers, which by the way, to this day, we live with that legacy that these are workers who've been excluded from the right to collectively bargain. They've been excluded from the Fair Labor Standard Act, which means basic minimum, you know, labor standards. And so as a result, you know, we've seen, we continue to live with this legacy, but over the years, we see more and more workers surely being excluded from these types of protections. And if you fast forward to today, where the roaring debate that's happening around gig workers and independent contractors versus employees, like, you know, if we're not careful in this moment, we could in fact create a pathway for a whole new set of exclusions that will once again keep mostly black and brown workers and many women workers out of these kinds of basic protections and most importantly, collective bargaining rights. 
So now that people are kind of absorbing all of that, I want to just mention that your book is filled with fantastic people. Some of the gorgeous photo uh, pictures by the artist Gwen Seymour, is that her name? Or fantastic, gorgeous portraits of people like Ruby Nell Walker Barbie, Kimberly Mitchell, uh, Lydia Victoria. I mean, the list is long. You allowed (laughs) one guy in, I saw. We did. (laughs) <laughs> we did yeah we snuck him in and a special guy at that <laughs> jeff, jeff crosby, crosby. Is, is there a story you want to lift up of somebody that perhaps illustrates the challenge that these workers are facing now excluded or otherwise sarita well maybe i want to take a moment to just give a little context for why we decided to include sure. worker stories and these portraits and your own uh, stories which are very important too yeah thank you yeah Well, first off, we felt like it was very important to actually tell the stories of the workers in their own words, but also not to just name them as workers who are going to talk about the problems and the challenges that they're facing, but to really lift them up as the strategists that they are, that they, in fact, know what they need in order to improve their lives. And so the stories really capture both the ways in which they develop strategies, the ideas they innovated on, the lessons they learned about how messy democracy is to how hard all of this is to, to how they were actually personally transformed by the whole process. And we thought that was really important to lift up that in addition to lifting them up as whole people, workers are more than workers, right? We, humans, they're humans, and they have multiple interests and multiple forces at play that are impacting their daily lives. And so we thought it was really important to lift up these stories in that context. And the portraits, because we felt like, how often do we celebrate the leaders of our movement? Often we walk into buildings and museums and you see these portraits, and it's usually usually an older white guy, it's rarely the amazing women of color who are leading the labor movement today, right? And so we really, really wanted to capture these portraits, these yeah. these images of these workers. So there's also something about the way that the artist Gwen Seymour does the work that reflects the sort of intersectionality of who they are, different exactly. colors, different lines. It's just beautiful. I could talk about that on and so on. <laughs> but is, is there one that you want to lift up? All right, Smiley, yeah. your turn. <laughs> It's hard to choose just one, but I'll pick one that Sarita was responsible for leading the interview. We had, you know, we got to split them up. And so in some ways that one, it's kind of nice because I can read it from with fresh eyes. But speaking of the one guy who fit in, part of why he's phenomenal, right, is because uh, Jeff was able to tell us a story of what automation has looked like over the years and help to really, through the lens of his experience with General Electric and the factory of the future, understand that it's not so much automation that we should be worried about or even concerned about, but that it's the role of workers in defining new technology. And I just, I still can't get over his story about the transistor radio and how everyone thought it was going to somehow be the demise of things. And then, you know, there's like an upgrade around the television and like, you just keep having these moments throughout history, regardless of which technological boom it is, that it's seen as like this threat, this wave of the future. And on the one hand, if workers aren't a part of the decision, it could easily be used to undermine democracy, to focus solely on maximizing profit, right? Like it's, that's not new, regardless of the new technology, that practice is very old. But when working people have a say, then, you know, we can begin to discuss who benefits from the increased productivity, or is that really increased productivity? Perhaps we need to organize it differently 
and make it work for all of us. And that's actually something that's fundamental when we think about the future of work and the future of workers, which of course is what Sarita is now leading over at Ford. So can we collectively bargain our way through automation, gigification? Do you have examples? We can and we have. I mean, many unions, in fact, I think the United Electrical Workers have an entire work kit for many of their locals on how to negotiate over technological changes, including the questions of how the increased productivity and the increased revenue benefits workers. Does it mean that if you don't need as many humans operating a thing, uh, does that mean that people can work less and still be paid more or paid the same? Or even when you look at how many transit unions have been negotiating over automated vehicles, this understanding that even if you don't have a human driver, you still probably need to turn off the automated switch and turn on human decision making in the event of a potential accident or some kind of mechanical failure. And so even in Jeff's story, one of the things that I really appreciated was the workers and the union had a technology committee, intervention of actually following machines as opposed to just just focusing on like, you know, one particular part kind of being a cog. And the benefit of that, one of the other things that's really important about it, and this also goes to why we wanted to paint workers and show workers not just as leaders with stories of their own, but also as strategists, right? To blur that line between like, leaders and organizers kind of thing. It was just like this notion that there's real, there's also just real dignity in the ways in which workers would then access and utilize new technology. Like listening to Jeff's story as I got the opportunity to, uh, or reading it as hopefully many of you will, it could really feel, it really came through the difference between the factory that failed, that didn't include worker input and the factories and the news Mm. uh, assembly lines that were successful that workers had a part in making. And you can really see the value in that. There are so many stories here that we could tell. And I'm sure, Sarita, you're, you're <laughs> jumping to tell to tell more of them. There's fabulous stories about domestic workers. and But I do want you, Sarita, to talk a little bit about domestic workers and, and how yeah. they actually have figured out how to collectively bargain a bunch of people who don't come to a union hall and even to use new technologies and apps to, to strengthen their organizing and to strengthen their bargaining position. Absolutely. Domestic workers is one of the, actually the National Domestic Workers Alliance is one of the alliances we lift up in the book as examples of some of the innovations that we've seen in recent years. Again, going back to the history, this is a workforce that has been excluded from collective bargaining rights and and labor standards, mostly Black women, immigrant women, women of color that make up this workforce. These are nannies, these are, you know, house cleaners, elder care providers. And so what's fascinating, Laura, is to see the trajectory over the many years, actually, since domestic workers began organizing. And to be clear, they were building on a legacy of organizing. In the book, we talk about the Atlanta washerwomen who were organizing many, many moons ago. 1880s, (laughs) right. Exactly. (laughs) And that domestic workers today, and especially, I would say, in the last 10 to 15 years, we've seen this incredible coming together of workers who are they're winning, you know, the first ever New York State Domestic Workers Bill of Rights that is now spread across the country in a number of states and cities. And that had set basic labor standards, right? Everything from pay to a days off, et cetera, to 
the evolution of that as a tool to cre the creation of standard boards. And so in Seattle and then Philly and a number of places, we see the coming together of what are like tripartite structures, you know, domestic workers, organizations coming together with industry leaders, coming together with the state or city or county to, to set standards and to negotiate over training and a, a number of issues in the industry. Two, what just happened a few months ago, which is, you know, Domestic Workers Alliance creating a gig worker advocate sort of side of their organization. It was born out of the domestic worker movement, but gig workers who are then on the platform, they were platform workers of Handy, a Handy, which is one of the largest, you know, platforms for cleaning services. Their Handy Pros, which are the workers, were able to actually negotiate a pilot program in Kentucky. Indiana and Florida, where they were able to negotiate $15 minimum wage, like base pay, they were able to get paid time off, and they were able to win essentially a grievance process. Every month, workers on Handy Pro come together with the managers and talk about what's working or not working on the platform and how to improve their experiences as workers, as service providers on these platforms. And that is huge. And yeah. this is like thousands of workers who are being impacted. I just want to repeat, in Kentucky, Indiana, <laughs> and Florida, which well, aren't exactly methods right. of uh, <laughs> progressive Although, policy making uh, right now. One of the other things you have in the book is a new map for That's how right. to think about these things. I mean, one That's of the right. arguments that I hear very strongly through the book and from what you've said is that we need to change where we are putting our expectations about who our leadership is, what the critical issues are, and where this organizing can take place. And in particular, you say there has to be a centering of race and gender or of you know people of color and women if we want to win. Mm -hmm. So can you just talk a little bit about what's different there from what we normally hear where we need to include people and that map of yours, uh, Smiley, I understand it was your map. <laughs> it was something, it's, it was, it, well, look, let me put it this way, right? I mean, being from North Carolina, I was sick of being red all the time and, and having that not take into the, to account the history and the movement and the power that came from the people I grew up around. And so, yeah, I mean, look, this is, this is one of those things where it's not simply about inclusion. I think this is really a really important point. It's actually about building and perhaps seeing in the future, building a new a democracy that we can all see ourselves in, a very different framework than what we've been given. And that it's not so much that what we accomplished before through the New Deal and and the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act was wrong. They were really good experiments. We've now seen many of their limitations and it's time to expand on them so that we can apply a framework that allows everyone to participate in decision-making. And so this map is very straightforward. It actually is just a question of what's the relationship between even any given state or county and 20th century forms of democracy, including can they still vote and elect people based on popular support, majority opinion, and can they form and organize uh, unions and negotiate in their workplaces in ways that are based on a majority opinion. And what, what we saw is that in places that had long lost, if they ever had uh, access to 20th century mechanisms of democracy, economic or political, like the Atlanta washerwomen, that in some, some of these places, working people today were had far more appetite for building something new. They weren't just mad about what had been lost. They weren't just feeling left behind by recent institutions and administrations. They actually had an imagination for a 21st century democracy that we could perhaps all get behind. 
And so I think that's important because, you know, you asked earlier about some of the stories in the book that we really like. Another one really is like the West Virginia teachers. And the idea that gave me or the, the thing that gave me the idea for this new map, it was it originally showed up in an article on the JWJ mm. website called Teachers Map the Path to Power. And it was because the three counties that first walked out in those those historic teacher actions in 2018 that we were all moved and motivated by were Mingo, Wyoming, and I, I should, you know, you would think I would learn the third one, but I, I always forget the third one, and, and they should totally uh, chastise me about it, but there were the three counties at the bottom, and you would think, because they were the first ones who took courageous action, that they were like the left vanguard of the state, but in fact, when you looked at a political map, they were like in some of the most conservative areas of the state, like embedded, like, like in there, ride or die. When and how do you explain that? Yeah, and how we explain it is very straightforward. In fact, like many of the folks here have a, a relationship and a history to a movement past. Many of them are the grandchildren and great-grandchildren of people who fought for dignity in the Battle of Blair Mountain. And like their interests were very aligned with many of us who would consider ourselves progressives or even left. They were very clear on dignity, respect, this need of taking care of each other. In fact, the teachers, which sometimes one of the teachers told me, uh, who, who's in the book, actually told me the story of how her uh, husband worked as a medical technician and like would, would make sure that he texted her and other teachers every morning if one of the students had a parent or older sibling who had OD'd or who had, had a, a problem so that they could adjust and ensure that that student was taken care of and had wraparound services. But that's that's what community looks like. That's mm, what collectivity looks like. Right. And if you see those values, those values don't always show up in a political map. But those values drive people to act in ways that we might underestimate. And so mm. as organizers, if we aren't looking for that, if we're just looking at the political map, if we're just thinking about the whatever, the muddy middle and the soccer moms and whatever the pollsters tell us, we'll actually miss the opportunity to see people take real courageous action. And Laura, just one, one other thing here, because you asked about race and gender I want to be really clear, like, again, it's not simply about inclusion, because we don't want to be included at a broken table, we sometimes want a new table, right, and I think many working class white workers, right, have the same reaction, they want a new table, and so what's really exciting about the yellow states on that map, and, and where many workers are in motion, including workers at Amazon, workers in my home state of North Carolina, just voted at Starbucks and Boone to form a union, there's a new Amazon committee in Durham, right? So like there's a there's a lot of momentum happening even outside of the traditional locations. And, and I think it's critical because what it actually shows us is that not only do these workers have a new appetite, but the thing that's motivating them, right? You If you listen to some of the interviews of Big Mike from Bessemer, if you listen to some of the interviews of Chris Smalls and other workers in Staten Island, you automatically see that many of the workers saw their fight on the shop floor as their movement for Black lives. The fact that mm, they were over surveilled yeah. by police being a majority black work site that that was their movement for black lives and that was the motivating thing that got people in motion to fight and ultimately in some instances to win and so right. that's why we say it's the key to winning i want to come back to this and sarita i want to come back to this again in in a global sense about one of your global examples but before we do that i i just want to ask the two of you, you know, and the other thing that I see and I saw in West Virginia was that not just West Virginia, but some of the more surprising organizing that we've seen in the last few years, whether it's teachers in Chicago or the teachers in West Virginia, is their idea of what is within their purview to organize about. 
mm-hmm. um, that they organized the entire school, including the janitors, uh, that right. they would not accept to be compromised, just their workplace or just their level of work. And instead, they had this kind of inclusive sense of community organizing, which I wonder is sometimes cut off exactly by traditional union organizing strategies and, and the people that head them up and how they think about how it's always been done. And I wonder if you see a, a sort of synchronicity there, because I mean, the story we just did about West Virginia was about a labor union for sure, the, the, the AFT, but they're organizing people to deal with those wraparound services for everything from a garden to a new building, to shop fronts, to, well, you name it. That's right. And the workers are totally on board. I'm all in favor yeah. of going to places that haven't been organized because they might actually have a better idea of how to do it. <laughs> That's exactly right. And some of the examples we lift up through the story of Allison and Heather, who are the two West Virginia teacher worker leaders, is this idea that you can use traditional bargaining to raise issues that are broader than what is deemed permissible at the bargaining table. It's, you know, really seeing bargaining as a site of struggle. And the most recent examples of this certainly are bargaining for the common good, right? And some of the examples you're lifting up, Laura, is exactly that. The fact that Chicago Teachers Union was able to build in through their contract negotiations um, the ability to have services for homeless students and families, or in Minnesota, where they were able to stop raids, immigration raids in their schools and in their communities. I mean, there are a multitude of examples, and going back to West Virginia, that you really understand that there was a moment, if you read the story of Allison and Heather, they talk about and the campaign, there was a moment where they won. They, they could have just not gone on, you know, continued their work stoppage, but they decided, no, this is about other state employees. This is about public education as a whole. This is about us fighting for what we know communities need and families need and what our future really needs to include. And that is what's so compelling about Mm. these strategies is to think expansively about what we can bargain over and should be bargaining over whichever vehicles allow us to do it. But that bargaining is one vehicle through which we can do that effectively. Erica, you get to have a chance, you get to tell the story of, is it Af? The, oh, Asia Floor Wage. Because that seems like an amazing story, too. I mean, people <laughs> think globalization makes this kind of organizing impossible, but okay, it's not, as you show. Bargaining with the ultimate profiteer. Yeah. It's got so many elements of what we've been trying to talk about, and they just recently won a victory. So the case study that was in the the book came to fruition on the same day that the workers in Staten Island won their victory with Amazon. And so what you have is an industry, the garment industry, and I guess they call it fast fashion, right? These are the people that produce really, you know, t-shirts and things that, you know, go to Target and H&M and these, you know, large uh, multinational brands to sell. And they've been organized in their own unions within their own country for many years. And a lot of the unions, even though it's a majority women workforce, have been led by men and they've been fighting for better wages. And in fact, the Asia Floor Wage Alliance, the name comes from this idea of trying to negotiate wage based not simply on any given country's minimum wage, which always creates like a, the ease with which 
companies can go and always find a lower price for their workforce, but instead to base it on real things that workers need. I think they, they use, you know, the needs for food consumption, housing, like the costs of like what it takes to sustain yourself in any given place and to adjust that to any given country. So there's a great calculator for it. But what they found was that they weren't able to get brands to the table just talking about the wage, you know, and we've seen many attempts at global bargaining. You know, we've seen like these big global framework agreements from the global union federations, the guffs. We've seen, you know, perhaps in 2012, after the fire in Bangladesh, we saw uh, the Bangladesh Fire Construction and Fire Safety Accord, in which some companies did sign on. But, you know, you saw big American companies like Gap and Walmart hold out. But in this instance, this is what's really interesting about it. And this is why it's such a powerful story. So the women in many of these unions decided that, you know, we, they wanted fair wages, of course. But the thing that was really making their lives miserable was the gender-based violence they were experiencing in the plants and the facilities from managers locking them in, not letting them out to active cases of assault, to rolling women out after they reached a ripened age or whatever it is. And so uh, they formed this, this committee on gender-based violence across country. So it was across union and it was cross country to get these companies to make some changes and to force the suppliers to change their behavior. And because this was the thing that was motivating them, and because we know a lot of these brands feel very strongly about their reputation and, of course, market many of their clothes to women, they got the brands to the table when the, the leaders of the union couldn't based on wages. And then they didn't just take that opportunity to negotiate around gender-based violence. They actually negotiated a contract that was far better than what they could have imagined had they just focused on the floor wage. And in fact, it includes this idea of like preemptive retaliation, where if uh, anything happens to a union leader or steward, it's actually the burden is on the company and the multinational brand to prove that they didn't do it, that it wasn't a matter of retaliation, right? Mm. And so this is an example of how centering gender and centering right. gender justice actually got and cast by the way in that and one in that and case. cast right? right got them to the table and got a, one of the first global brand bargaining agreements of its kind something that very well funded and institutionalized uh, groups hadn't been able to do there are so many amazing stories in this book i really encourage people to to pick up a copy asking you as we close to tell us a little bit about your own stories which come across mm. very powerfully and i think are important because they're not actually union families that either one of you comes from right. instead it's sort of environmental and speaks perhaps to your kind of broad vision of what is the realm of organizing? Smiley? Yeah, it's true. I said a couple of times now, right? I came from North Carolina. I didn't come from a union family, but I did see people in struggle. And I saw people who made powerful decisions. I mean, Greensboro, North Carolina is the home of the sit-ins, the Woolworth sit-ins. And of course, I mentioned in the story, the Greensboro massacre. And of course, the struggle of workers at Kmart, where I was like a teenager, part of a church youth group that answered the call. And I didn't know they were in a union. I didn't know that's where they were trying to win, but that's exactly exactly what was happening. And I saw collective action get the goods. And I think, you know, it was important for me and Sarita to include our own stories in this as well to show that part of what we're fighting for isn't just more people to be like us in our union family. And it's not just to join this cool kids club, but to actually expand democracy for everyone, people who've been excluded, people who've been included, and to really try to imagine something different that could really work for all of us. And, and for me personally, yeah. It felt important to share that story to understand like my motivations and why I feel so on purpose and aligned with the work that many of my ancestors did when they first walked off 
the plantations to at least do my part in my generation to try to actualize that promise. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'll dive in quickly and just say my story, as you said, Laura, is similar I, in the sense that I did not grow up in a union household as a child. Uh, my family immigrated to Rochester, New York, otherwise known as Kodak City, which for you New Yorkers is not Canada and it's not the Midwest. It is part of New York State. Um, <laughs> but my experience was really shaped. My thinking on this these issues of dignity and agency is really around and collective bargaining is based on my experience growing up one town over from Kodak Park, which was the industrial facility in Rochester, in a working class community where the majority of the kids that I grew up with had family members who had worked at Kodak for multiple generations. And throughout my childhood, I mean, I was literally like nine years old when the first wave of downsizing began at Kodak. And I saw the devastation in my community as people were losing their jobs. They couldn't find jobs to replace the good jobs they had at Kodak to sustain their, you know, middle-class lifestyle. And it was devastating to families. It was devastating around issues of race, actually. I mean, I saw this is largely white working class communities where it was easy to scapegoat the workers in other countries. And then it became the immigrants in, in Rochester. And then it, you know, it just, and these like, feelings of division and blaming got seeded then and frankly have stayed with so many of the kids I grew up with as I followed them on Facebook feeds and, and recognized that. And for me, what was really devastating was how many families really felt left behind. They felt like America quit on them a long time ago. They felt left behind by employers. They felt left behind by policymakers. And as a result, they really feel like they've lost faith in our democracy and the role of government. And so these are the divisions that we see in America today, you know, growing anger and frustration that people fundamentally feel a serious lack of respect, dignity, and agency in their lives. And that is really what compelled me to write this book. But also the last piece I'll say for both Smiley and I, I think is Throughout our journey as organizers in our childhood, both of our childhoods, this notion and actually in through the worker stories, all the amazing workers we got to talk to for the book, one theme that came up a lot is it's, yes, it's about the right to live with dignity and agency, but it's also about the right to live joyful lives. That at the end of the day, the so what of all of this is that people are able to live with joy. And that's really a big piece of what compelled me to write this book and what I carry from my childhood into my organizing life to this moment we're in now. Beautiful. Well, joy is a good place to end. And I want to remind people to get hold of the book. You can at uh, thefuturewineed.com. It's available at all the usual places. And our guests are the co-authors, Sarita Gupta, who's now at the Ford Foundation. She had to go somewhere. Erica Smiley, who is, I'm realizing, a professor at the CUNY School of Labor and Urban Studies. Sorry, I didn't mention that before. You must fit that in a month in between being executive director of the Jobs with Justice. The book is, as I said, at thefutureweneed.com. And you can find out a lot more about SLU, the School of Labor and Urban Studies at our website. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. It was a pleasure. Truly, I, I leave full of joyful commitment to collect collective organizing and bargaining. And I'm going to go and negotiate with my family right now. <laughs> Thank you, Laura. <laughs> Issues like those raised in today's podcast 
are taken up in classroom discussions at the School of Labor and Urban Studies, where our preeminent faculty and engaged and diverse student body grapple with the most pressing challenges confronting organized labor and working class communities. For more information about the school, visit slu.cuny.edu. To learn more about the podcast and listen to other episodes, visit slu.cuny.edu slash podcast. To subscribe to New Labor Forum and or sign up for our free monthly newsletter, visit newlaborforum.cuny.edu.